0: Welcome to Pondering AI. My name is Kimberly Nevela. I'm a strategic advisor at SAS, and I'm so excited to be hosting our second season. Once again, we're gonna be talking to a diverse group of researchers, policymakers, advocates, and doers, all working to ensure that our AI-enabled future puts people and our environment first. Today, I'm so happy to bring you Dr. Eric Caraxlis. He's the Chief Science and Digital Officer at the Duke Clinical Research Institute, and we're going to discuss the intersection of data-driven technologies, like AI, with medical research and practice, amongst other things. So welcome, Eric. Thanks for having me. So as I understand it, your current role does sit right at that intersection of policy, research, and technology. So can you talk to us about how you've come to this work and how you've become not just a consumer of information technologies in your work, but also an advocate for their safe and appropriate use?
1: Sure. You know, my career started a long time ago as a hospital engineer. My undergraduate and my master's degrees are both in engineering. So I've kind of been bringing technology to medicine for 35 plus years now, if I'm being honest about it. It's been a while. Um, What I'm now doing at Duke really is the culmination of the 17 years I spent in industry, working my way through learning drug discovery and development, a few years at FDA, learning something about technology and government and regulation, and as well as all my academic interests, which have always focused around how to solve basic problems in science and in medicine. And what attracted me to Duke was really a chance to fundamentally rethink the approach and the value, and even the, I guess, the personas of clinical trials. You know, what is the purpose of the trial? Who really benefits from it? Is it really safe and effective? Is it better? You know, there's lots of products that could work, but then aren't necessarily better than all the other products on the market. You know, so there's, there's, there's lots of dimensions of, of uh, help. There's lots of dimensions of value. And the value part is especially difficult because, you know, in the U.S., we more or less have a pay-for-procedure um, health system, which value is tough. You know, there's a lot of smart people trying to study what value means in medicine, and I don't think there's a working definition yet.
0: Yeah. So there's a a lot of areas I want to explore with you. Obviously, in the work that you do and in the research that you do, you lean into a lot of data and information. And you recently co-authored an article in the New England Journal of Medicine, I believe, regarding what you call the hidden dangers of, and I quote, the free flow of information within the medical industrial complex. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about the benefits and where we're using information really well. But Also, what are some of those key dangers and why was it important for you to sound the alarm or maybe raise awareness now?
1: Sure. One thing that's always been true about medicine, and it actually exists for good reasons, is that it's always easier to focus upon the benefits of an intervention. You know, people are enthusiastic. They want to help, right? That's that natural thing. And sometimes you don't really, you know, look before you leap and you don't realize what some of the unintended consequences are of that intervention are, right? They can can be very sensitive. You know, the classic example of this would be, you know, an arthritis drug that worked really well, but had long-term cardiovascular toxicity effects. You know, it was studied in the skeletal system and the immune system very well. It wasn't really that studied in the cardiovascular system, right? And so you just find out that later. And so I think what we're seeing though, is if you think about medicine, technology and the internet, uh, I think that we we know in advance what a lot of the harms are. So one of the places I spend a fair amount of time is in cybersecurity. And if you listen to cybersecurity, people or hackers talk, they'll talk about known knowns and unknown unknowns and known unknowns, et cetera. <laughs> what we tried to do in the New England Journal piece was really talk about the known knowns. You know, the, the the fact that there are a lot of less than benevolent data brokers out there that are vacuuming up lots of data. And there's lots of You know, there's lots of legal uses for data that aren't necessarily beneficial, even harmful. You know, so an example, people that are studying demographics in an urban neighborhood could look at, you know, what's the percentage of people that shop at this supermarket that cash their paycheck there? And how often do they cash their paychecks there? Okay, these are people that have week to week paychecks. Maybe we should open a paycheck loan store on that block. You know and something that may be helpful to some but could be very predatory to a lot of others right and so the the supermarket loyalty cards that are collecting this data they're not thinking about that (laughs) and it's kind of not their fault but this is what i mean by you know people are really smart and inventive both for good and sometimes not for good and so data can be used in really unexpected ways And then there's the other truism about the internet. Whenever it's out there, it's already out there. You can't get it back. can't get it back. You can't get it back. So, so, you know, what we're really looking at is saying, especially in that piece, was we wanted healthcare institutions simply to think about who they authorized use of their data to.
0: Yeah. And there were a couple of really interesting points. And one thing that jumped out to me is that this idea of First, do no harm is a fairly well-established medical Mm -hmm. principle, as as I think you just alluded to. And we are accustomed, and we've had these conversations, to thinking about harm resulting from data-driven systems or AI in healthcare in medical terms. Mm -hmm. And certainly, those algorithms can, and they do. They exhibit biases. They make diagnostic mistakes. They might correlate things that are not causal, so on and so forth. But you've been really among the first, I think, to argue that the risks of us applying these technologies and gathering this data extend beyond just healthcare outcomes. So, mm-hmm. can you explain why we need to expand our scope and think in terms of outcomes that are not necessarily traditional healthcare?
1: Sure. You know, first of all, if you think about healthcare data, it's actually a somewhat unique an arbitrary slice. If you look at my EHR record, you'll see I broke my leg snowboarding at at 53 years old. And you'd say, well, maybe this guy's not that bright. I don't know. You know, what was going on, right. Or he's, he's very w- adventurous. Or he's very adventurous. Right.
0: <laughs> um, but you, you get these
1: really weird episodic pieces of your life. And it's almost always private. Right. And, you know, mm-hmm. let's look at something like, you know, pediatrics or let's look at something like uh, domestic violence, or something like that, where there's a lot in people's health records um, that's that's personal. I mean, we saw, you know, and this isn't new. If you think to HIV in the '80s and how difficult that situation was for people, they didn't want to keep their HIV status secret, but they were worried about losing their jobs. But because, so they kept it secret. They were actually putting other people at risk. So these aren't new concepts for sure. Right. You know, and so the idea that some of these things can be quite personal. The other thing is that the way data is often regulated and the way products are regulated are categories, you know, so there's, there's healthcare data Mm -hmm. and there's internet data and there's, you know, consumer data and things like that. There's very little legal protection against all of that being pulled together. You know, so for example, you think about your, your medical record, Um, One of the interesting public domain data that data aggregators can get would be, for example, you're over the counter buying at some place like CVS, where you get those 13 foot long receipts every time you you print something out, right? Um, You know, pregnancy tests. You know, there's just, you know, there's a lot of things that go on health that are very private, very personal, can be very misinterpreted. At the same time, data is actually very poorly available within these institutions, which is one of the other points that we make. In this piece is that a lot of these institutions are selling the data to make profit, but they're not using their data or any of the proceeds from selling that data to actually improve data within the hospital. So, for example, lots of institutions that have large EPIC installations, um, Duke being one of them, this may have changed, but as a year ago, there was no way to link a parent and a child in EPIC. And, you know, if you talk to any pediatrician, they will tell you that 90% of the wellness of a child is tied to how the parents are. You know, if the parents are insecure, the child's insecure. If the parents um, are out of work and stuff like that. But that's, that's all blind to a pediatrician. They don't know that situation at home. It could be a grandmother that brought the baby in or something like that, right? So there's so many interoperability problems within the bubble of healthcare data. <laughs> and, and, and there are lots of people that falsely, in my opinion, are saying, well, the way to fix those interoperability problems is to push the data outside the healthcare bubble. And It's like, well, I, I don't understand how that helps, given that you know what I see are clinicians with a baby... And a screen, you know, in front of them, and they're trying to put the piece together. And I don't know how going to go to a sixth party that's aggregating data is helpful with that.
0: Yeah, that brings up another interesting observation. And I think this is true across industries. And that's that organizations often project value, sometimes more value than there actually is, and default to using the data they have. In lieu of maybe thinking critically about the data they need, which may or may not exist, right? It may not be there yeah. or in there. In yeah. So is that a risk that you're calling out with the proliferation of things like electronic medical records that might have been intended to collect information in one context being used and other data collecting devices being used to do things like research?
1: It is. But there's also been a lot of progress. I mean, you know, we hear all the time social determinants of health, mm-hmm. you know, a term that you barely heard five years ago. Right. But now it's, it's 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 ubiquitous. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to realize that we are not our our epic record, <laughs> you know, that there's a lot other things about us, our health status, our family situations, you know, our vulnerabilities um, and our strengths that are actually best found from other things. You know, like I said, you can find out a lot more about a person uh, from their CVS over-the-counter buying and their grocery loyalty card than you possibly will find out from, you know, an instance or two of their medical record, <laughs> right? See, what are they really eating? What are they really buying? What are yeah. they taking over the counter? Um, so I think that's, that's that's not a bad thing that you're able to build these comprehensive pictures for research. I, I think they're important. And I think we're seeing more implementation science research, especially, that's taking kind of ivory tower concepts and making them useful uh, to people on the ground trying to do good health service work. So I, I think all that is good. But at the same time, you know, healthcare data is not the new oil. <laughs> and I wrote a piece about this years ago, mm-hmm. when that that came out. And a piece uh, that I wrote with uh, Andrew Caravos is, it's not the new oil, but it may be the new blood. And, you know, one way that I really encourage people to think about this since we wrote this piece in Lancet is, is that data about you, I think, should be treated like a digital specimen. You know, kind of kind of like, you know, you donate your blood to a blood bank and you have protections about that and there's uses mm-hmm. of that. To me, that's a closer alignment with what would make sense in an ethical time that these are actual, you know, digital specimens that 100% can and should be consented and used for research and certain things. But then there should also be a very clear list of misuses of them right. and you know it's interesting I'm not sure when this will air but we you know, we got several letters to the editor to the New England Journal piece that we've since replied to none of them none of them brought up any possible harms of doing this you know, interesting. It, you know they, they never addressed it never ever addressed a harm which is like, oh in the future technologies will blah 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 fine they never addressed the, the vulnerability mm. of a patient mm. and I gotta tell you I mean you started medicine and it gives you a rash And you know, the rash gets bad and you call the doctor and they switch your medicine. You know, that's what's called an adverse event. You know what? Well, these days a bad credit score is an adverse event. And it's a lot worse than a rash that takes 72 hours to resolve. If you ever try to get something off your credit score, because anybody can put anything on and it's almost impossible for you to prove what you to prove to take it off. (laughs) And I I think that's the paradigm that we need to be scared of.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting. I am that really irritating patient in front of you who asks to print the privacy policy and then scratches things out. And I'm pretty sure they don't do anything with it, but I do it anyway. Um, It's annoying for all involved except for possibly me. So a little knowledge goes a long way, but it is interesting that it's not that easy necessarily for patients to really understand and consent. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it would be reasonable for people to assume that when folks are saying, we're gonna share your information with other providers for likely good intent with good objective, but it'll be de-identified, right? It'll be anonymous. That they assume that guarantees a level of of privacy mm-hmm. and security. Why is that not the case?
1: You know, it's we got to this in this article, and I've talked about this. Mm-hmm. This is actually a really complex thing. And it's a little like those letters to the editor of the New Journal I mentioned, right? Yeah. Is that that people will feel that the harms are just unlikely, even though they -hmm. they actually happen and can be quantified. So, you know, an an example of this is if you look at the California Consumer Privacy Act, I forget what the acronym is for that, you know, one of the things that went in there, there was a lot of debate in that legislation about de-identified data and making re-identification illegal or some form of liability protection if a patient was re-identified. And the argument that the the kind of the data stock market industry made was, but our de-identification is perfect, right? And I'm like, okay, well, first of all, no, it's not. But if they even believed it was, why wouldn't they provide perfections? Because it was really perfect. Mm -hmm. They should be able to provide some assertion, right? So it's kind of like, Fracking doesn't hurt your water supply. Let us frack at your, your backyard. It's like, we'll guarantee our water supply for 20 years. No, fracking doesn't hurt your water supply. <laughs> so the circular conversation doesn't resolve. And I think that's where we have to, you know, at least in my research, kind of I'm going to come down on that, that consumer protection side and say, I counsel people that no, unless they're giving you some protections, ask how it's going to benefit you. And I recently saw something in the last week in the UK where the national health system in the UK was going to do a very large data release to private industry. And I believe Mm -hmm. a bunch of consumer organizations got together and stopped it. Um, You know, I don't love the outcome there either because, you know, they've got GDPR. And I'm like, well, there was probably some really interesting research that now won't get done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why couldn't that have been handled in a way where they negotiated – the right type of outcome, so that data could have gone out. It was kind of like, it's good or it's bad. And I think that's nothing in health is that easy. You know, we know things are bad. (laughs) It's hard to know what's good.
0: So the other thing I had read that it was interesting around anonymized information is you notice that this sort of idea of anonymization Mm -hmm. or, you know, de-identifying is not a, a panacea even when the data seems to be good, even if it was perfect, because yeah. using anonymized data doesn't always lead, you said, to high-quality research. So yeah. there's other things that that happen. What are some of those other implications when we're leaning into or depending on just anonymized or de-identified data?
1: Yeah. So first of all, the way a lot of these anonymization schemes work, they, they work by stripping out certain amounts mm-hmm. of information. So the imperfection there is that even though know, you've taken some of that information out, that same information may be available somewhere else, like a supermarket loyalty card. And it would (laughs) allow people to then reconstruct the data sets, right? So so that's where it's imperfect. Now, what that also does, though, and, you know, we saw this early in COVID with several high-profile paper retractions from really top-tier journals, Mm -hmm. is that people that are aggregating these data sets may be misaligning things that they're aggregating, you know, large... Instances of Epic probably have forty or fifty different versions of hemoglobin listed in their their system, and you know Amy Abernathy, who's who's brilliant, right? And people know who Amy is um, currently now at Verily. You know she has a great quote where she said, you know, you never really know a data set until you work with it. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, okay, but well, well, then how do you know if twenty data sets were linked based on some? anonymization tokenization scheme that you're actually comparing apples to apples or even apples to fruit (laughs) when it comes down to it. So I think, you know, so I think there needs to be work done on that. I don't think that's a reason not to do it. What my understanding is there are researchers right now that are doing that type of research. Then they're taking the full data sets and just seeing what it would be like. So there's quality issues. The other thing is that in general, anonymized data research is not governed by institutional review boards, Ah, right? So real simple, it's anonymized, huge gap, right?
0: So this is interesting because we have the propensity or what I've observed is a propensity for people to believe that because some of these technologies are new um, or the techniques are new, the mechanisms to govern that technology also has to be new, but healthcare does have a rich ecosystem of safeguards from things like the FDA and CDC all the way down to institutional review boards. Should we or could we be leveraging these more?
1: I, I think when it comes to regulation, the more that you can make things similar, <laughs> the less you're going to hinder innovation. You know? And and you know, it's it's one of these things where I think if you look at things like the Google Brain and some of the things Facebook did, I actually believe those might have been interesting studies. I just wish they had like gone to an IRB, gotten the right approvals and ran it. They would have saved themselves a scandal and the world might have benefited from the research. It's like, you know what? It's six weeks. Just do
0: it. (laughs) So for those that aren't familiar with the concept of an IRB, because I think that does exist in other industries under different names, what is it and what is it intended to address?
1: Sure. So institutional review boards for human subject research are, are basically multi-stakeholder, multidisciplinary groups of people whose job it is to establish that research is is ethical, legal, and all of those things and you know ethical sounds like it's it sounds like it's soft but in medicine it's actually it's actually kind of not soft, right so so for example, you know, are the people doing the research qualified to do the research? Have all, measures been taken to protect the subjects of that research from harm, right? Um, Is everybody licensed? Is the facility licensed? Is there a valid statistical plan, you know, so that if the research comes out, they won't misdo something because we we see that happening, right? I mean, it's kind of fascinating because I just turned 55 last week and and I've been doing science for 35 years and I don't know if I'm supposed to eat an egg. Because at least 30 times (laughs) in my life, eggs have been good or bad. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So I I don't know if I I eat them anyway. But, you know, you don't know if you're going to eat an egg. And I think the idea of IRBs is that you can't have that. You can't have do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Mm -hmm. And so it's built, of course, to protect the institution. That's why they call it. But they really are about protecting the subjects, ethics, legal review, clinical review, Engineering review, all the different disciplines that need to say this is a good study are there. So if you're a if you're an independent person trying to do, you know, health data research and you want to prospectively collect data, you can absolutely go to like an IRB like Western IRB and they'll walk you through how you how you get an IRB approval. Or you can go to the IRB and they'll say, you get an IRB exemption and you don't need an IRB. That's the hook they always say you can have an exemption when you're anonymizing the data, right? So again, it's a little bit like a parlor game that people aren't doing it because they're saying it's unnecessary, but they're not proving it's unnecessary. Uh,
0: that's interesting. And, and so in some ways, we're sidestepping the issue entirely. And again, I, I can't imagine that it's a lack of caring. So is it just a lack of awareness that there may be not only medical or, you know, research implications or implications to a patient? Is it just a lack of the mechanism and literacy, is it a combination of all of those things or other?
1: Yeah, having been involved in this type of thing and, and, and patient security for so long, the way I view it is that when something bad happens, it's almost always a mistake. But there actually are a few real bad guys out there, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's kind of the way I look at it, right? That most of these things exist to, and most of these measures need to exist to keep people from making well-intentioned mistakes. But there are some very, very predatory. And I mean, I mean, look at cyber threat in this country right now. You know, this is another thing that those letters to the editor didn't adjust. We've seen this since our election last November. We have seen foreign entities. Probing and testing and simultaneously taking down large portions of our national infrastructure, including healthcare. You know, we're in a warm war, if not a hot war, cyber war right now mm. internationally. And this industry is acting like that's not happening when it comes to what they're doing. <laughs> so so I would look at it and say, so in cybersecurity, we talk about attack surface. Right. It's all the different ways someone can get it. By aggregating these massive data sets outside the institutional protections, you're setting up huge targets Form issues.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, this idea of customer centricity and thinking mm-hmm. about harms, intended use, yeah. applications, um, outcomes. And in the case of healthcare, that's patient centricity. That's been a focus, yeah. right? It's, it's been a rallying cry. It's got to be for a decade. And I'm not yeah. going to tell you how, how old I am, but I'm not far behind you. Yeah. Um, is that easier said than done in this realm? I actually think it's
1: easier said than done in every realm. And yeah. it's not the best of intentions. <laughs> I mean, what, what is it, the Henry Ford thing? If I listen to my customers, I'd be making faster horses, Yeah, right? <laughs> it's, it's that today in some ways. But at the same time, I do think that it is moved a lot in medicine where you're seeing that a lot of these institutions have patient advisory councils and things like that, that they can bring their idea, we're, we're going to do this big deal with Google, what do you think of it? One of the things you most often will hear is, that institution had a large patient advisory council and didn't use it before they did that data deal. And it's so it's, you know, that's kind of self-inflicted. So I I, I do think it's getting better. I also think that people are, people are far more shrewd consumers about this stuff than than we think they are, right? I mean, I think people, I think most people that have significant online activity have made conscious decisions about it, meaning that they've chosen to be very, very closed down and very hidden and very private, or they assume none of it's safe anyway. So they've been very open. <laughs> you know, I, had a, I had I'm not sure which, once, is,
0: which is scarier, honestly, I, but-
1: uh, I, had, I had a banker once that told me he actually used his social security number as his password and everything, because he said, it's the thing about me that's probably our, our, everybody knows, which isn't the right <laughs> way to do it. But there's, you know, but I think I think when it comes to healthcare, they don't necessarily know the harms if they're not denied employment. And, and I think- where this comes down is, you know, the concept of privacy is really challenging, right? Because Mm -hmm. I, as as I often write about privacy, I actually don't believe that privacy in and of itself is that important. It really doesn't do anything for you, right? It's really like the absent from harm. What what I think we need to do is possibly follow the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, GINA, which isn't a privacy law, it's a non-discrimination law. Okay. Interesting. So when the human genome came out and everybody was all about how the genome was going to transform health, regulators and lawmakers were very smart. And they said, we're not going to hinder the use of this data. We're going to tell you what you can't do with it. <laughs> and, and in some ways, that's, that's what I almost think would be a great solution for what we're seeing. Other parts of healthcare data make the bad things illegal
0: mm-hmm. and,
1: and, and people won't do them. And then it matters a little bit less that your privacy doesn't exist. You
0: know. So while we work to shift some of those perspectives in the landscape, are there discrete steps that we can take as patients or as organizations working with this data or as advocates to increase the the safety and security? I don't know if those are the right words, really, of these technologies and the associated data.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're great. And I advise several uh, groups like the Light Collective, which is a large group of administrators of breast cancer um, mm-hmm. forms on Facebook and other things, 30,000 you know, uh, breast cancer patients that are doing a lot to really try to find and ensure that their data is being used productively. You know, if you're, if you're an internet security guy like me, and you're thinking about the vulnerable, I'm thinking about the, you know, the, the young mother who just had a mastectomy and is debating whether she should do a reconstruction. And she goes online and starts, you know, talking to different people in these groups. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she shares a picture of her scar and it's all being scraped for pornography you know, I, I know what happens out there. It's not okay. You know, it causes real real harm to people. And then then that ends up, somehow that, you know, pops up on something when an employer is looking at her profile, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, you can't get it back. So I think, I think education is, is really important. Without saying they should shut the internet down <laughs> um, in some ways, right? You really, you really have to, I think, getting together is important. Working with your institutions, you know, even what you said, about scratching things out on the form. I bet you when you do that, everybody that touched that form remembers that you did it. Even if they didn't use it, they remember that you did it and it left an (laughs) impression, right? So I'm a big believer in all the the little, the the small things and the big things. But I do think this idea of really pressing, I don't have any optimism about the U.S. coming up with a far more modern privacy law, but I do think we should be pressing for non-discrimination law.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting perspective, and it'll be interesting to see how that really plays out uh, yeah. over the next couple of years. And, and the other thing that I take away from those comments is that in the same way as in the retail realm, we've seen this merger, and I think most people are, although maybe not as many as we would expect, are, are aware of the integration between their offline and online digital mm-hmm. and retail and some of that, you know, that sort of merger of those digital and, and real-life worlds. That we also need to be talking more about healthcare also being in part of this bigger ecosystem. It's not Mm -hmm. just in the privacy of your doctor's office anymore, just staying Mm -hmm. within that office and that. And, And I'm not sure we talk about that conceptually enough as well.
1: We, we, lean in, we lean into the technologies, which I think is great. You know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of telehealth, like a lot of people, but I do do work with groups, you know, like the, the National Institute for Domestic Violence and Mental Health, where we know that people that were only safe talking about being hurt at home don't have any place to talk about that when it's a telehealth session. Yeah. You know, things like that. So and is, does that make telehealth bad? No, <laughs> it doesn't. But it, you've, you've got to look at these tools and say, OK, so what, what is the fallback? You know, do we need clinics or something where these people can go? Because now they're not safe and now they're dropping out of care, you know? So, you know, all these technologies are great, but you've got to, you've really got to look at it in aggregate and you got to look for those gaps, not because they're any way intended to criticize the technology, but because if you don't address them, they eventually will hold the technology back. You know, I never started in my career with an intent to actually be that all that interested in privacy or security. But I I had a lot of outlandish research ideas. (laughs) And so over the time, I I established expertise and authority so I could do cutting edge research safely. You know, I I never wanted to go to law school and, you know, any of that stuff. But it was it was a matter of that, you know, that's what I wanted to do. So I I became an expert. in And I think that's the opportunity for people to do. People should lean in. To this, people should lean in and say, "Look, this will be even better if we do this." And the folks that that discounted are or, or too focused on the fast buck. I think we have to assume they're a little bit dangerous.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you know, we have these conversations, and and I always come back to this point too that the folks we're having these discussions with, like yourselves, who raise these issues, who raise these concerns, are actually. You know, not the detractors. We're, we're advocates. We see and believe in the power right. of these technologies. So mm-hmm. to sort of end things on a forward-looking note, what emerging research or developments are, are you most excited to watch develop in this space over the next, yeah. you
1: know? The one that should be the simplest I'll end with is, is actually clinical trial participation. You know, can people be in a trial no matter where they work or live? Today, today, they can't. It's primarily white men. It's primarily within a mile radius of some place like an MD Anderson, mm-hmm. right? And stuff like that. And so that, you know, that single mom, that, that young dad or something like that, um, the blogs that I did in health affairs as an example, um, you know, I think we can change that. All the technology works. The tech, it's, it's kind of there to do it. We, we need to innovate on how to do safety, right? Because that would be the one thing. How do you keep track of safety when you're not seeing the patient yeah. regularly or something like that? But if we, can, if we can do it for the drugs that have known safety profiles first, <laughs> right? I mean, so, so you, you've got to kind of chip away at things when it comes to regulation. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at everybody talks about real-world evidence as being important in healthcare, and it is. If you look at where the FDA has accepted real-world evidence instead of prospective data, it is for things like randomization of rare diseases where there simply aren't enough patients to randomize. Right. Right. So go to the hard things and solve a hard problem and make a point. And then, you know, the, the stuff will look easy after that. And so, I mean, for me, it's basics of equity, because I think if we can crack basic equity, we'll actually really invent better products. I mean, I was recently asked about, you know, how I talk to people about research, because there's a lot of people, especially now with misinformation and disinformation and lack of trust in research. And, you know, what? the simple way to say it is that if, you know, certain populations don't participate in research, they'll eventually have something prescribed for them without it ever have been tested in them by people that don't even know it was never tested in them, (laughs) you know? So it ends up being kind of uh, harmful long-term.
0: Wow. Wow. You heard it here, folks. And we will certainly be following and watching Eric's work and those like him in in the field. So thank you so much. I think that was... An incredibly insightful look into these very complex interactions and considerations, you know in that intersection between healthcare policy, research and data-driven technologies.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Next up, the discussion continues with Yona Welker. Yona is a tech explorer leaning into the future of learning, well-being, and human-centered innovation. They think differently, and they're going to raise our awareness about the importance of neurodiversity, why inclusion is not enough, and the role of social AI. You're not going to want to miss this thought-provoking discussion. So subscribe now to Pondering AI in your favorite podcatcher.